This episode of Home Truths was sponsored by Heels, design that lasts a lifetime. I was working at Martin Spencer's. I remember on a tour, sometimes when you're on a tour and it's not really busy, you sort of end up zoning out and reflecting about, oh, like, I don't want to be on a tour anymore. I want to be in my own studio and managing a team. And that my plan was to have my own studio. And I always thought to myself, oh, God, will I ever be able to love, like survive and make a living off design? And I didn't think I would. about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pip McCormack, and on the show today, how designer Yinka Elori went from working on the tills of a high street store to running one of the most exciting and dynamic design studios in London today. There's a real energy that pops out of the work of Yinka Elori. From his kaleidoscopic chairs to the rainbow-hued structures he's built in places like Dulwich Picture Gallery, his designs put brightly coloured shades together that shouldn't work, but do. He'll tell you it's partly inspired by the brightness of the markets in Lagos, but at the core of his output is his incredible work ethic, a self-belief that saw him apply to the Prince's Trust for a £3,000 business loan over a decade ago and never look back. But it hasn't been an easy ride, and from juggling his commissions with his part-time job that kept his studio dreams alive, Yinka's story is an inspiring one for anybody not sure if they should just keep on plugging away. Before this interview, Yinka gave me five milestones that he feels were key moments in his career, and in explaining the stories behind them, he's going to tell us how he got to where he is today, beginning with a project he was set at college. project that was set by my tutor uh, called Jane Atfield um, and the project was called um, Our Chair. Uh, so we were set this brief by Jane, who's also a designer. She's got a, I think a chair at the V&A Museum. She was one of the, one of the first designers to uh, use recycled plastic to make and design furniture. Um, so the brief was, uh, in the brief we were inspired by Martino Gampa, um, who, you know, who has also done a project called 100 Chairs in 100 Days. Um, so we were told to go and find find two old chairs and uh, redesign it in something new, um, using every component, every element of that of those two chairs, to then produce a new narrative. Um, and that was how I kind of fell in love with storytelling and upcycling. And you were literally sort of scavenging in skips for products. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, I grew up in, in North London, in Islington, um, and. In that sort of area, you know, I mean, I'm 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 sort of on the border between sort of uh, Islington and Hackney. So my sort of areas of travel was sort of Islington and Hackney. So Dalston, uh, Angel, uh, yeah, that was my kind of areas. If I'm on the bus, the Tiago bus 56 or World 73, I'd always see uh, old bits of chair, uh, chairs sort of sitting in skips, or you know, I would sort of see some chairs on a side street. So I would get off the bus um, and go and collect these chairs. So I would, I would end up with, let's say, three or four chairs um, on, a, on the bus that I might sort of see in one go. Um, so it became quite an addiction, actually, collecting um, old bits of furniture and then sort of having to stack them in my small bedroom in uh, in North London. And were they like, you know, moth-eaten, you know, ragtag old street chairs with like bits of stuffing falling out of them? Or, you know, what sort of condition were they in? 
Yeah, I mean, you might find some chairs with a, you know, with, with, with a broken leg, and the leg is actually still um, on you know, next to the chair that the existing chair. So you've got this sort of three-legged chair with a, with its leg broken off, or you might find a, you know, another chair with a ripped-up upholstery or a broken back. So they, they, yeah, they came, they, they sort of, you know, they were found in um, various conditions. But I don't know. I always felt like when I saw these chairs, I saw each of these chairs has had their own sort of characters um, and personalities. Um, so they sort of kind of, in a weird way, they sort of spoke to me and I knew what I wanted to do with each of them. And what sort of things did you do to them? Um, so what I love doing is, is is trying to sort of retell narratives. And what I would try and do is, you know, take existing stories of people that I grew up with or maybe it might be family or, or personal experiences. And I try to keep the original narrative of where the chair has been found from and try to sort of put together some, try, try and literally try and make the puzzle and try and work out who left this chair here and why is it here. Then I would put my own narrative on top of it, which might be a story about someone I grew up with in school or um, maybe my sort of personal stories. Um, and the first thing I try and do is try to sort of, you know, work out a way um, how I can kind of merge these two narratives together, which is one respecting the, the, the current narrative, but also giving it a new story. Um, and then it starts off by me taking the chair into the studio and deconstructing the chair um, and then trying to use colour and pattern to you know, sort of weave weaving in that, those elements into the, the, the process and try and tell a new narrative. And did you sell these pieces or what did you do with them at the time? Well, yeah, at the time I was working in Martin Spencer's and I remember just, you know, uh, yeah, at the time being supported by the Printers Trust. Um, and I remember I had around, I think around 20, maybe about 20 chairs, I think it is. I can't actually remember, but um, the Princess Trust, you know, kindly um, gave me this pop-up shop in uh, in Moorgate, which was my kind of first experience of retail um, and sort of having my work in a public space um, for sale. Um, and I remember, you know, there was this one guy um, who would, you know, I think he would bought, I think maybe seven or eight of my chairs in one go. Um, because he was just really fascinated by the work I was doing um, and also wanted to support me. Um, so, yeah, I remember at the time, yeah, that, you know, I was really worried about so much work I was producing. Um, and that it was, I mean, it wasn't going anywhere. Um, but then, yeah, slowly people started to buy the work and I was, yeah, able to make more. Make more. Did, you, did you feel like you kind of struck gold because you were just sort of taking old bits of trash from the street? and making money out of it i did actually yeah because i mean at the time i you know i i really felt that you know um a lot of people you know i think yeah the public and also i think the design industry wasn't really understanding what i was what i was doing and you know why i'm telling stories and why is it old furniture and i think that the concept of you know recycling or, or, or reloving um i think for a lot of people they didn't understand what was the reason why but i think for me it was a lot more deeper than just the object itself it was about the stories um, that I can provide within these chairs and you know also you know the, the the beauty of taking an old object and trying to understand its its, its narrative but also giving it a new story so I think it, it took a lot a long time for people to understand what I was doing but I think once once they sort of you know understood what I was trying to do then then yeah I did kind of feel that I'd have I've struck gold because there wasn't really anyone that was doing it apart from Martina Gamp who did it really well and you know was for me a huge inspiration um, when I saw his, you know, his his project, um, but yeah, there was no, no one really sort of doing um, what I was doing at the time. I've been doing, I think, I've been doing this for nearly like ten years now. Um, and then, uh, so 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 yeah, I think, I, yeah, I did actually think I struck gold at the time. Do you remember how much you were selling the chairs for at that time? Oh God, yeah, I think between like three fifty and seven hundred pounds. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, but what, what's what's been what, what's been interesting along the way is that the chairs now become, you know, like sculptures and art pieces. So at the time, I think I didn't understand, you know, the value and I, I mean, I knew what I was bringing, you know, to to, to design. But I think um, a lot of galleries and you know curators were quite interested in, in interested in the, in the chairs and wanted to sort of showcase them in, in you know in galleries and public spaces. So the work did sort of change, take a you know a sort of a, a different sort of turn. And I think. You know the kind of the, the the sort of I don't know the sort of the buyer and the sort of clientele really changed as well. So I don't know. I think I then started to kind of you know create chairs that was less functional but more um, more unfunctional, more you know more art. You know? Well, this was a really interesting period in design because it was around the same time that the phrase upcycling, which I know is not one that you love, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. That sort of was coming into kind of public knowledge, you know, sort of that slightly post-recession, you know, giving new life to old pieces. So that was part of it. And also at the same time, we had this kind of really high-end design art moment where, you know, people were, you know, the really rich people who hadn't been touched by the recession were spending thousands and thousands and thousands on a on a chair that was art, as you say. Sure. So I imagine you kind of sort of merged those two feelings together. Did, did you feel yeah. like you were part of that or were you just doing your own thing? do you think I, I think it's a bit of both you know I think when I was when I started out I remember you know designing my first collection in my back garden um, with some tools that my dad had bought for me from B&Q because he was a store manager in the one in uh, I think it was uh, where is it sort of on Leebridge Road um, so at the time I was I've, if I'm honest with you I, I didn't really think I didn't know much about the art world if I'm honest with you I, you know my background is furniture and product design so art for me I've, I mean I can paint and I, I studied fine art um, I, you know, I did it for my, I did it as an A level, but my primary focus was art and design. And I think I always did sometimes sort of like separate the two, art, design, and and, and I mean, the art, yeah, art and design are separate sort of entities. But I think for me, when I started designing furniture, my primary focus was yeah, it was creating chairs that you could use, and I wasn't really worried about worried about it being, you know, sculpture or not. From I was just creating work. Uh, but then I think. When I had interest from sort of galleries and sort of I don't know museums and that kind of thing, then I was like, oh, I don't know, you know, like you know, there's there's no difference between art and you know art and design. It's, it's, it's the same thing, like you know, they're both from the same world. I think it's just how you, as the, as the user or the audience, kind of interpret it, um, and, and you know, and how you how you view art and how you view design. And do you know how those sort of museums and galleries were finding out about you? How was sort of word getting round about your work? Um, at, at the time, I think it was, uh, I mean, the main kind of, I think the sort of mainstream media or the sort of big like, design applications weren't really um, uh, sort of picking up on the work I was doing. Um, I think it was it was like people who had blogs um, that were writing about the work. And I think and then I think other kind of publications sort of, you know, had seen the, the, the articles and then I think they started to sort of write about it. But I think if I'm honest with you, at the time, you know, Instagram was fairly new to me. And my friend was, you know, who I used to work with, Mark Spencer's, was like, oh, you know, you should try and get onto Instagram. It's really good for your business and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, because I, I, I'm very, I'm quite a private person and I'm also quite a shy person, believe it or not. Um, so the idea of Instagram was, was for me, was quite a daunting and quite a nerve-wracking experience because obviously you're, you're exposing yourself to the world and allowing your work to be sort of criticised. And, you know, you know, so for me, that was like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to do that. Um, so I did eventually get Instagram and I put some work on there and the rest was history. Yeah. You know, it opened lots of doors for me and everyone just was, yeah, it was, was just getting in touch. And then shortly after you graduated, you landed an internship at Lee Broom. Yeah. How did that come about? 
Well, if I'm honest with you, you know, you know I've, 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 yeah, I've yet to, you know, meet Lee Broom again and, and, and thank him because, um, and, and why I say thank him is because when I finished my um, degree, I had, you know, I'd reached out to, you know, different design studios and I wasn't really getting the work, you know, and it was, you know, it was quite a frustrating time. Um, you know, and I'm sure it's, you know, it's a tough time for a lot of graduates now, but I remember sort of sent, I remember sending off my CV to Lee Broom, Lee Broom studio um, and his assistant had got in touch and said, oh, you know, Lee Broom loves your work. He would love to offer you an internship. So I went for an interview and I met Lee Broom. And I think at the time Lee Broom wasn't, <clears throat> I mean, he's, Lee Broom's, you know, he's so successful and, you know, and, you know, inspirational, for, you know, for a lot of people and for me as well. And just to see what he's achieved is, is incredible. Um, and at the time, I think he was, I don't know, he wasn't as big as he is now. Um, at the time, he was working on a project um, in Westfield for this Lebanese restaurant called Manalam, um, which was, yeah, this sort of Lebanese restaurant. And I remember going on site with him to to see the space and just being really inspired and just sort of seeing how you start a project from start to finish. So what was nice about Lee Brim was that, you know, we were really, you know, allowed to be involved in some design process uh, elements and also, you know, go and see site visits um, with him. So it was quite nice to sort of see how you start a project from start to finish. Whereas in some studios, you don't really get an insight into like processes and how to, you know, like deliver a project. And it was amazing. Yeah. You know, just sort of seeing Lee Broom and sort of how he's, you know, yeah, you know, um, grown and, and just, yeah, what he's done. Um, and at the time, I think for me, like he, he did something, which was this really cool table, which for me was like, I think he was one, he was actually another designer who, I think, yeah, I think in 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 London and in the in, in the UK, um, he was for me, in my opinion, he may think different, but he was sat between art and design. You know, he I I really think like Lee Broom's um, early pieces were for me was like sculptures. They were incredible. I I agree a hundred percent. I mean, oh my god, the melding of materials that he used. Oh my god, yeah, incredible. Do you mean he did this table with this kind of carpet, this kind of, I think it was this kind yeah. of Parisian rug? Yeah, the parquetry table. Oh yeah. my God. I mean, so for me, I was like, I've got to work with Lee Broom. You know, he's, he was someone that I think, uh, yeah, understood, you know, art and design and under, understood design. Um, and I think, you know, when I, out of all these places I apply to, it made sense for me to, you know, to try and get an intern with Lee Broom and I, was, I got it. So did presumably that kind of opened your eyes to the possibilities of, you know, you could one day run your own studio, you know, seeing Lee do it? It did, yeah, you know, because I think when you graduate from university, you don't really get an insight into like how the studios run or or how you start a project, how you get commissions and how you manage a project, like how you manage budgets. All these things are so crucial, you know, for a project and you know, and also it's also crucial because, you know, if you do a project successfully, you will get more projects and people will, will commission you more. So, yeah, you know, and it gave me the hunger to want to start my own studio. So when I finished working with, with Lee Broom, I think I was there for a few months. Um, I then went on to go and, well, yeah, feeling inspired from, you know, you know what he had done and what he achieved. Um, I went on to go and, you know, I could get a loan from the Princess Trust to start my own sort of, you know, business and you know, studio um, and that was how I sort of started my first, you know, collection of work. You wrote a 10-page um, sort of business plan for the Princess Trust. I did. I did. How did you even know what to put in that? Oh, my God. Uh, that was intense, yeah. So, I, I mean, what was great about the Princess Trust was that, you know, you would get assigned a... Well, well actually, before that, you do this sort of like, this like two or three day kind of course about business. And, they, and what they do is they, they put you off having your business because they tell you how hard it is. So in a way, they, which is great, and they tell you like it's late nights, it's you know if you get ill, you know you like you your business still has to function. Like there's so many things they tell you, 
Um, and I remember, you know, on the sort of third day, you had half the people drop out and they were like, oh, this isn't for me. Um, because it, you know, having a business is, is, it sounds amazing being your own boss, but it's a lot of hard, hard, hard work. Um, and at the time, yeah, I probably was naive to some elements of it. And I'm sort of understanding, you know, like what they meant about how hard it is to have your own sort of studio. But um, I remember at the time they gave us a, um, a sort of mentor and also um, someone who would help us with our business plan. Um, and then someone who was also a mentor in like in an industry. So I had this guy called um, uh, Lawrence Corbett. He used to work at Virgin. I think he was like one of the, I think I'm sure, forgive me if I'm wrong, Lawrence, but I think he was one of the directors or something. He was really high up. Um, and he was helping me with, with like um, my business plan and giving me advice on, you know, like where I should, then my next steps with my business and where I should go and what I should and shouldn't do. But then also I had a really great guy in the Princess Trust called Dave Doughty. He was literally on, on the phone whenever I needed him. If I'd call him about a contract that I had, um, if any kind of potential sort of client or, or project, he would read, you know, through the contract with me. But then also was supportive when I was you know, with me and on my business plan, which was one of the tough things I ever done. Um, and then when I'd finished that, you know, then you go and pitch to um, the panel, panel of three or four people and then you get a yes or a no. And I got the yes, uh, which is amazing. And I understand that they gave you £3,000, which is a good sum. But when you're setting up a business, I can't imagine it goes that far. How did you prioritise how to spend that? Well, what I did was I had to be quite smart, actually. So, you know, as I said before, I had to um, produce my collection in my back garden um, and on my um, uh, garden table that my dad got me. But then also I was working in Marks Spencer's, working in retail. And um, for anyone who's worked in Marks Spencer's, you know that Marks Spencer's are really good in supporting uh, students and, you know, people who have ambitions and goals um, and for me, I was working there, I think, like three or four days a week. Um, and the majority of the time I wasn't working, I was sort of putting all the money into my business. So everything I made from my um, part-time working in MS went straight into my, you know, my, my practice. So I never really, didn't really have a social life because I was just so hungry and so passionate about making it and just being successful and just trying to make this studio work. Because I did, one thing I did know for me is that as much as I love, you know, people, as much as I loved, you know, working in retail, it wasn't a career path for me. Yeah. Um, and my and my dad, you know, who you know, who had worked in retail, you know, in in, uh, in managerial positions from you know commercial managerial positions, he said to me, you know, son, like um, I've worked in retail, you know, for you know for a long time, and you know, I wouldn't want you to work in retail, like you know, you're very talented to make sure you make something out of your out of design, and that it one did put a lot of pressure on me, and and but just you know, always always every time I was in retail and working in my expenses, and I was on a till. My dad's words always, was always in my head. So it was my like I felt like I owed it to myself and owed it to my family to make sure that you know I do make this design thing work. Um, yeah. And what sort of work were you creating at that time? Um, I was just creating chairs. You know, I was. I remember um, I created three chairs, uh, and I remember having to sort of you know like yeah shoot them in my like in, in my state, and they were really raw. And now the reason why I can look back at those images and those like the where they were shot in terms of location was because I know where I was in that time in my life and like where like where I was in my kind of in 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 my career um so whenever I look at those photos they always they always feel really raw and like and and like unapologetic and unapologetic and just really kind of unpolished and I think I don't know yeah that those are the kind of times I, I really remember and always kind of keeps me I think yeah grounded and, and really humble 
I just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you about the timeless pieces available at Heels. Just as Yinka's pieces of furniture have become collectibles, so have many of the items sold at Heels. From the famous Eames chair to the Togo settee and hang-it-all coat rack, Heels is where you can reject fast furniture and invest in pieces that are built to last. Have a look in any Heels store or on Heels.com. Heels, design that lasts a lifetime. Were you selling direct to customers at that time or did you have stockists that did that for you? No, I was just selling, yeah, direct to customer, yeah, which was which was good, you know, because I really um, am a people's person and I love talking and meeting people. Um, but I think as you just learn over the years, you can't do it all yourself. Um, you have to sometimes let go of things. But yeah, the, the really early pieces were um, direct to customers, going to people's houses, you know, packing, delivering yourself. You literally are the, your PA, you are the Uber, you're the driver, Uber, Addison Lee, yeah, everything. And even with your dad's words kind of ringing, ringing in your ears, it must have been hard to keep going at, at times. There must have been periods where, you know, money perhaps wasn't rolling in or... Sure. How did you keep going or how, how was that? It was so tough. I mean, I, I remember, you know, um, one of the things I was, was doing when I, when I was studying for my degrees, I didn't get a loan out. Um, so I saved up all my money from Sainsbury's and from and Marks and Spencer's. Um, and I paid off my student loans just off my savings um, because I was so like against like having to pay back any sort of money um, or anything that might sort of put, put a hindrance into my, I don't know, sort of me trying to start out and start my career. Um, but yeah, there were times when I wasn't selling, selling anything. I was really, yeah, I was yeah, nearly out of money. But, you know, at the time I, won't be, I was at home wasn't really paying any rent, you know, at my parents' house. And that really helped me. Yeah, there were moments where I did feel like, oh, you know, I might give up. And I think that moment where I nearly felt like I was going to give up was in 2015. Um, when I had said to myself, this is my last collection. Um, you know, this isn't really working. I need to find an alternative route. And I remember, I've never, I've never actually said this to anyone, but I did actually go into, mar- I went into marketing, which is wow. crazy. Um, I did this... Um, I was so I was I was working at my dispensers. I went on to apply for this marketing position, um, and I went there for the first day. And the next day I didn't go back. I was like, "This is not for me. Like I can't go around." I mean, again, no disrespect to anyone who's marketing, but I I just thought I couldn't go to people. You know, I was also on commission as well, so I was selling. What was I selling? I was selling. I was selling something. I remember actually, but going door to door and just trying to sell things. And I was like, "This isn't me. Like I don't want this. I want some. I want." Um, stability and like security and you know like neither neither design or marketing is if you're on commission isn't stable but I, I knew that it wasn't for me so I could have been working in marketing you know actually that is a yeah. I can't picture it yeah neither can I <laughs> <laughs> so then in so then when you sort of had that moment um you know, I know it was another couple of years before you launched Jinka Alori Studio in, in 2017 sure. so how did you get to that point yeah so I think it's really fun because everyone's like oh did you start 2017 I was no I started my practice in 2011 um, and that was just, you know, um, on my own. So I think, you know, in order for me to kind of grow and to, you know, to, to take on bigger commissions and projects, I had to, you know, try and form a studio and, you know, bring people in to work for me. So, you know, there were kind of this family, design family um, and studio. So in 2017 was when, you know, you know, I felt like I was, I was a studio. So I had people working for me and, you know, we had um, people working, working on, you know, architectural projects. That was it was when we sort of, you know, won, you know, won the um, uh, the, uh, the test of road projects. We'd done projects in like public realm, like uh, playgrounds in Shoreditch for during LDF. But 
Yinka, this is amazing because this is such a big step away oh, yeah. from when you were saying you needed to give it all up and work in marketing. I know. I How know. come all of a sudden this incredible work was all coming your way? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I think if I'm honest with you, and the, 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 the honest truth is, is that I think there were some really good people around me, like really good people who worked in um, in, in, in PR. Um, and I, I, if I'm honest with you, I remember um, uh, Zettler PR, um, and, 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 you know, I, Sabine, yeah. And I think I remember when I went to, I went to Milan, um, I don't know what it was actually. It was again, I was working in this at the time at Mark Spinters. I went to Milan. I went to do this project called Afro Future. It was, um, during Milan Design Week and it was created by, um, uh, Beatrice Galilee. And then, um, I went, I was taken to Milan to, um, do a project in, uh, in, in La Rina Center. Um, don't know if you know it at all. It's, um, yeah. it's really cool. This cool sort of design store. Um, and then I remember I met, I was on a way to the, to, in what, into Milan and trying to find where I was going. And I just met Saw Sabine. Um, and we were obviously, you know, two Brits and we we're on our way. And she, and I, she was, we were both lost. Um, and then we just started talking and then got back to London and I was obviously still doing, you know, what I was doing design wise. And I think people were really, um, sort of catching on to, you know, me, sort of what I was doing. And then Sabine just, you know, just really loved what I was doing. And she um, then started bringing projects my way and started, you know, doing um, some PR for me as well, um, based on projects that she was, you know, providing, giving, you know, sort of, you know, putting in my radar. Were you paying her for PR or was she just kind of helping you out? So if I'm honest with you, like Sabine was doing it was the, the kindness of her heart. Mm. Yeah. That doesn't you surprise know. me. Sabine is a bit of a guardian angel, you know. I've had similar experiences with her myself. She's great. Yeah. She was doing the kindness of her heart, you know, and, and you know, and I, I just thought that, you know, like, hey, Sabine's bringing me these projects uh, and I've just got to make sure, you know, I, I do these projects well. And so we've just been friends this day, you know, so any sort of press or anything or anything like that might come through, you know, she would always put me forward. There's, there's no such thing as one, an overnight success and two, um, it, I, it's, it's not just me, you know, like, it's, again, it's when I'm working in my studio, it isn't just me that does the work. It's my team, you know, without my team, there is no studio, you know, without people who've helped me along the way, there's no yin kalori, you know, yes, I have the, the, the creativity and the talent, but you know, there's, there's people who are, you know, who are behind you. Um, there's a saying that my parent, that by this um, musician, and he says, um, people are my clothes, that I, people are my clothes that I wear. I don't know if that makes sense to you, of that, if you understand that kind of parable in a sense that, you know, um, without people uh, around me or, or, then I, I am no one. Yeah, that makes sense. And because you were taking on some really big projects now, now you had this sort of, I guess, this sort of momentum behind you. I want to talk about the Dulwich Picture Gallery, for example. Like, sure, sure. Sort of explain to people who might not be familiar with with it what what it was. Yeah, so the Dulwich Picture Gallery was um, for me was this explosion of colour and um, uh, and also for me a kind of uh, this a, a pavilion, you know, called the Colour Palace in in Dulwich Picture Gallery. It was a collaboration between myself and Price Gore um, Architects. Um, and basically, for me, it was a celebration of culture. You know, I, I sort of br- brought uh, Lagos to, to Dulwich uh, in, in South London. Um, it's called Colour Palace because it was basically inspired from my uh, visits to Lagos, Nigeria. This uh, amazing and vibrant and, you know, energetic market called um, Balogun, Balogun Market. Um, and what I basically, it was, it was based on my visits to this market I sort of, you know, I go to every year with my family. Um, on family visits um, and it's a fabric market where you can buy Swiss boilets and Dutch wax prints it's such a imagine Portobello market but imagine 
that times a thousand, more than like a hundred thousand people, 40 degrees heat and color everywhere. Um, and no cars, just people. Um, so it's this crazy explosion of color and vibrancy and energy that I brought onto the color palace. And what I've done, what we did actually was when you walk around the color palace, you see this kind of, you know, this sort of, you know, planoscopic, you know, color shift. Um, and that is a reflection and a, um, a representation of, of the movement of people and color you sort of see in this market. So essentially, I'm sort of trying to bring you, um, I brought to, to South London, I brought Lagos, I brought that market to uh, to London. Did that build go smoothly? And was it an easy project? Or, or how was it to put it all together? It was an incredible project, yeah. You know, again, you know, I think one thing I think people sometimes get misunderstood is that I'm not I'm not an architect you know my background is furniture and and and, and uh, product design um but you know I've got a huge interest in architecture and you know um would love to you know hopefully continue designing design buildings to, to design buildings but um with you know price score you know, you know they were the architects you know they took on most of the pressure and all the engineering elements um we worked with a a, a fabricators who were called uh, rascal and they you know they built the color palette so yeah it was a smooth it was a smooth uh, smooth project um you know again a huge learning curve for me i learned a lot um about you know structural engineering and how things are built and how they you know stand up right because you know, again i i make furniture and design furniture so I don't have to worry about those things about, you know, yes, you worry about structure and stability, but we're talking about, about buildings that, that's got to withstand wind and rain and all those kind of things, you know. So, but yeah, it was incredible. You talk um, often about your Nigerian heritage and, and you just mentioned obviously how, you know, the markets of Lagos kind of influenced your work. You know, you're forging ahead in an industry which is largely white, yeah. often middle class. Yeah. I wonder if you've ever found that, if you found barriers placed in front of you because you're not white and I don't think you identify as middle class. Yeah, do, do you know what I was? I was thinking the other day because I, I grew up in, you know, my family. You know, one thing I always say to to everyone, I think I'm always grateful for, is that you know, I, you know, I wasn't, I'm not middle class, I'm not upper class. I'm just, you know, we grew up in like you know, a council estate in North London, and my parents weren't class people. They worked extremely hard. You know, they both had um, two jobs. You know, there was four of us, and you know, you know, that they had to, you know, to feed, and we were in an environment where you either had to work hard or you or you or, or you weren't gonna be in it enough, you weren't gonna make anything out of your life. So, you know, working hard was was really a thing that was, you know, forced upon and, and you know drummed into our ears, you know, you know, in, in at home. So yes, you know, there were I did find it really hard. Um because I think sometimes when you're when your experiences are very different from other people, I think it's hard for people to understand you and feel that they can relate to you. So sometimes you may feel you, you know, you're not accepted or you can't really fit into a certain type of, I don't know, sort of industry or, or, or environment, which, which, you know, which is, which is crazy. You know, and I think that's the beauty of, I think, of design and the beauty of living in London is that it's so much cultural. And I think there's so many, there's, yes, the classes, but I think it's quite nice to be able to sort of bring in, bring in or, or tell um, people about my experiences through my design process. Um, but I think I've never, let, never really let that sort of, I don't know, be a barrier for me. If anything, it's kind of always given me power and equipped me because I know I'm different from anyone. You know, yeah, you're right. Design is for me. I've always said it's quite an elitist industry. And it is quite. A, I think for me, it's not the most open industry design. If I if I if I must say, um, and I think one of the things I sort of found hard, you know, really early on was that it was the same designers who were, you know, getting the commissions or the projects and I think in my opinion again projects that I didn't really feel really felt you know was worth shouting about because it was other projects that I felt 
um, that you know other people were doing that was so incredible and and, and so I don't know so so moving. Um, but I think for me, one of the things I always am grateful for is that you know I always say is that yes, you know my parents weren't rich, but you know we was always rich in love and and care. And I think that's the only thing I really cared about. And I think my parents always said to us that, you know, um, to one, never give up. And yes, you know, yes, you know, like this is where you grew up. This is your environment. But don't let it, don't let it, don't let it ever be a deterrent for your success um, or for what you want to achieve. Um, but, you know, yes, I think there is, you know, design is, I think now is still a, um, a um, I don't know, quite a privileged industry and quite a sort of not yes not diverse you know it can be more diverse but i think um with with what's sort of been happening now with you know black lives matter and i think everyone being you know industry has been called out especially in design and, and fashion and you know every other industry advertising you know as well um i feel really hopeful and really positive of you know for the future um because uh you know there are there is some incredible talent out there i'm i'm here now and you know yes you know, I hope you'll be here in the next 20, 30 years time. But there are people behind me who are, you know, going to be, you know, way more incredible than me and, and you know, and, and, and break even more boundaries than, than I have. Um, so I, I, I love, you know, um, where things are going now. It was so brilliant when you joined the um, panel for well, the Living Etc. Drive earlier in the year with um, the, when we had run the inclusivity competition to try and yes. get different faces and um, different yeah. people into design. The prize was, uh, you know, that three winners would have their products made and sold by Habitat and they'd be paid a fair industry wage. And yes. it was hoping that it would open doors to people that might otherwise not get in. And having you on the panel was amazing because... All of the all of the contestants who yeah. made it to the shortlist were in awe of you. Firstly, they yeah, were yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were there. Um, second oh. of all, like, your experiences were so interesting and relevant to them. And then third of all, of the three winners who were being announced in Living Etc., two of them were BAME. And I just wonder if you have any advice for people who want to get into the industry um, from a BAME background, like how they might get go about it. I think for, for yeah, I think for me, I think one of one of the things I think when I was studying and doing my degree was that I always felt I was trying to conform and trying to sort of fit in to what I felt was design like acceptable design and because oh because this is what the press are gonna like and, and all this type of stuff. And I think sometimes, you know, when you're sort of studying out, you haven't really sort of found like your I would, I would say your calling or like what you like like who you are. And I think it, it does take time to kind of find out like, okay this is me, like, this is what I want to design, this is what I'm trying to say, and so I'm going to bring to the industry. So I think for me, anyone sort of starting out with, I think is always be proud of, like, your journey and where you're from. Um, and sometimes, you know, you will get people along the way who tell you, you know, that is, that, that's not going to work. That, you know, that's not going to, you know, that's not possible. You know, I remember when I did my degree and I there was, you know, some things that I designed and my tutor said to me, that's not going to work. Um, and, you know, if I took on their advice and said, okay, you know, so-and-so said it's not going to work, maybe they're right. But, you know, I think in my fam- family, um, we are, I don't know, should I say, we're, we're kind of, you know, we're go-getters. You know, my mum my, my and dad are, you know, very entrepreneurial and, uh, you know, always will always find a way to make something happen. But they don't care how, but, you know, they, they will find a way. So I think for anyone, I think just, just if you've got that passion and hunger, you just got to kind of believe in, in your craft and your vision um, and just try and see it through. Um, but then also... Uh, really understand like who you are and what you're, what you want to, what kind of imprint you want to make and legacy you want to leave in the industry. And I think for me, I, I now know like what, what those things are. Inka, have you ever had a master plan? And, and if you have, how close are you to it at the moment? 
Um, it's a good question. Uh, I've never really had a master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have actually. Yeah, yeah. No, that is the truth. And I think if anyone is listening from MNS, I, I remember um, being on the on the on the tills and using my mobile, having my mobile in my pocket, actually, which is not allowed. Um, and sort of you know using my mobile phone to sort of I don't know, um, yeah, sort of email clients and sort of you know tell clients yeah I can sort of do these. Um, these projects but then I remember on a tour sometimes when you're on a tour and it's not really busy you sort of end up zoning out and reflecting about oh like I don't want to be on a tour anymore I want to be in my own studio and managing a team and that my plan was to have my own studio and I always thought to myself oh god will I ever be able to look like survive and make a living off design and I didn't think I would that was always my plan so right now I think my yeah I'm living my dream and actually my plan is actually um, um, yeah, it's, it's coming to fruition. But my plan, I think my probably my my plan, like dream would be, um, I don't know, to sort of do more kind of architectural projects, maybe. Um, but then, yeah, yeah, that that yeah, yeah, that, that the plan for now. I think I'm trying not to put a lot of pressure on myself. So I think I'm doing right now too much at the moment. But I'm, I'm happy where I am now. I'm happy with with my position and how things are going. Good, good. Well, listen, we're going to move on to the very last portion of the podcast. So it's the home truth section, which is quick fire okay. round. Um, Yinka, have you got a favourite colour pairing at the moment? Colour? Wow, colour pairing. Uh, oh, gosh, pink and red. Yeah. Pink and red. Yeah. Classic <laughs> colour clash. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny because a lot of people do say it because oh, that, 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 how did that work? I, was, I don't know. But yeah, pink and red is my, yeah, my colour combo. What was the last piece of homeware that you bought for yourself? Wow, uh, last piece of home that I bought. Uh, good question. I bought this. Um, wow, that's a very good question. I bought this plate uh, from from Zaletti. Uh, I'm sorry, but it's called Blowjob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a really really cool plate. It's like this kind of plate with a with a hot dog on the yeah on the plate. Um, yeah, sorry. Perfect. Yeah, it's called cool job. Yeah, Perfect. It's good. What was the last book that you read? Last book that I read. Oh, gosh. I was reading, I haven't, I wasn't really reading it. I was just sort of whisking through. Uh, the book is called The Bauhaus. Um, yeah, Bauhaus, Bauhaus book in design. Just sort of looking through like Bauhaus design and like, yeah. Yeah. It's a gift from the Beach Design Museum. But I'm, yeah, reading, trying to read this book. Um, who do you look up to most in the world? Ooh. Right, you know, right now, my niece, she's free. <laughs> <laughs> she's living her best life, yeah. She's just uh, always a joy to be around. And uh, yeah, it's just nice to sort of, yeah, yeah, my niece, free, yeah. She's free. great. And lastly, where can people find you on Instagram? Um, Yinka Ilori, uh, so Yinka underscore Ilori. Great. That's my Instagram. Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for your experiences. It was just no to hear him. Thank, thank you. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime, don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc. UK and me on at Pitt McCormack. See you next time. This episode of Home Truths was sponsored by Heels, design that lasts a lifetime.